Hello and welcome to All Aboard TII's Accessibility Podcast. This is a podcast about accessibility and sustainable public transport, brought to you by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. I'm Claire Scott and I'm joined by our All Aboard podcast host, Sarah O'Donnell. Throughout the series, we'll be hearing first-hand accounts from people who use and design public transport systems, and specifically the role accessibility plays in these experiences. And who is this podcast for? In the first instance, we hope to connect with people with disabilities who use our services. But also, it's for anyone who is drawn to human interest stories and has a curiosity to learn more. And of course, we hope to attract listeners who are designers and decision makers for transport systems, who through the podcast might get a better understanding of some of the problems and potential solutions that are out there. So without further ado, let's give this a go and get all aboard TII's Accessibility Podcast. Hi Sarah, so I see we're taking a virtual field trip to continental Europe today. Who's joining us? Hi Claire. Today we're chatting to Laura Alshavskaute and to Dr. Tali Hatsakis to get an insight into the TRIPS project. TRIPS is a Europe-wide EU-funded research initiative focused on accessible public transport. Enjoy. So Laura is a board member of the European Network on Independent Living and is a leading coordinator of TRIPS. Dr. Tali Hatsakis is a research analyst with Trilateral Research, which looks at ethical AI solutions to address complex social issues. Now, the ambition of the TRIPS project is to make public transport more accessible for persons with disabilities, elderly people, and indeed everyone. Laura and Tali, welcome to All Aboard, TII's Accessibility Podcast. I hope that that introduction captured what you're about. And obviously, we're looking forward now to hearing about the project in detail and about all of your fantastic work. So I think maybe, Laura, if we start with you, um, it might be useful for people who are unfamiliar with the TRIPS project to maybe get a short summary, first of all, about the research itself, and then maybe we can go into more detail. And I'd also be very interested to hear about your own background in the European Network on Independent Living, or ENEL, as it's referred to and how, you're, how you subsequently got involved in TRIPS. Yes, Sarah, thank you very, very much for your nice introduction. Uh, indeed, I think you summarized the project very well. Uh, if I need to say it very shortly, because obviously I can talk hours about TRIPS, uh, it's a three years long project uh, in the U- European Union, and it's funded under Horizon 2020 program. And the main idea, as you already mentioned, is to make the public transport more accessible and more inclusive in uh, in the European cities. We are having lots of people involved coming from the different fields. So we're having researchers, we're having disability NGOs, which Anil is, is representing. We're having uh, transport providers, we're having city municipalities. And in general, I think we have 11 partners on board. So there's a lot of uh, expertise in the project, but our most activities are taking place locally. So there are seven European cities where most of our activities take place. And these cities are Brussels, Lisbon, Cagliari, Bologna, Zagreb, and Stockholm, and Sofia. So, so we're having like quite a huge variety among the cities. And each of the city, they have like the local groups. 
And those groups are combined mostly by the core user team, which are represented by persons having different types of disability. And we also named, uh, aimed a lot to have like very diverse groups, as diverse as possible. So making sure that every access needs is put into the consideration. And those groups are led by the local user lead, who is in the most cases uh, a person with disability themselves. But they're very, um, how to say, experienced in leading such groups. They're very known disability activists. And that was the um, idea that, you know, to make sure that the process is actually led by the users. So, but of course, they're not working alone. They're having transport providers, both local and national. They're having um, city municipalities on board, and they also some of them are even uh, contributing with um, universities. For example, Stockholm, they're having very close working relationship with Lund University. So, so like there are lots of people on board, and and what they're doing is basically looking uh, and designing the future mobility solution or some kind of digital solution uh, on innovation to make sure that. You know, we can do something to make transport um, easier to use for persons with uh, disabilities, but not only to them, you know, being sure that, uh, uh, that you know, everyone who's facing barriers in transport um, that they need are also addressed. So so that would be a very short summary about the trip. And uh, when it comes to Anil, I will also try to be very short because Anil is, well, probably one of the most known European networks which is led by the members. And we have members, uh, both individuals and uh, disability organizations from all over the Europe. And uh, uh, what it represents is mostly working on a disability movement for human rights and social inclusion, uh, based on solidarity, based on peer support, the institutionalization, democracy, self-representation, and self-determination. And our main vision, to say shortly, is that we aim that all persons, despite their disabilities or abilities, are able to have choice and to have control over their lives. So empowering them in a way that to be sure that they are having the same opportunities as everyone else, despite their abilities, and that they are valued members of the community and can enjoy all the human rights, as it has been said in the uh, United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So that would be very short about Enil. Um, about trips, I don't know. Sally, if you would like to add something, maybe I forgot uh, something important. Yeah, of course, everything, as uh, Lara said, starts with, with the users and, and the whole project was designed to, you know, like uh, represent that model of nothing for us we, without us. Mm -hmm. And we took this to heart. Because uh, there is, of course, a lot of accessibility consultancy and projects, but often the solutions come from experts for the users uh, in the absence of the users, and this is just like not right. Uh, we wanted to to create the, the the process and the tools to facilitate uh, individuals with. Uh, with disabilities to participate in open innovation. So the process itself is an innovation of the project, if that sense, because, yeah, not only we had to do that, we had to do it in the time of COVID, so we had to do it virtually. Obviously, the co-design element is hugely important. That's the kind of foundation of the work that you're doing. Um, and I know that from some of the user group uh, sessions that we have, that that's hugely important. 
yes, this is this was a fundamental fundamental for the approach of the project, uh, not only in the design phase but also at the strategy, at the prioritization. We didn't want to develop solutions because some transport authority or strategically you had in mind that this is what is needed for them, but let the users decide which solution should be prioritized. And Laura, how does that work in practice then, the, the co-design well, model? In practice, yes, uh, indeed, um, when you read about co-design, and that's another topic I could probably speak for hours, but I, I, I personally really like it. Uh, I find it like very important that everyone is considered as equal partners. And for example, me, you know, I'm representing the NGO of persons with disabilities. So I'm sorry in advance that I will speak a lot of on our perspective. And I find it very important, and I will find it very important that Persons with disabilities are considered as the experts of the accessibility. So they're not only short-term consultants, you know, or someone who's like providing one-time feedback, but they're actually involved from the very beginning, from the very end, with having the same right to say that, okay, I don't want this. I think that would might not work. Or also, in on the other hand, say that, okay, this is very needed. This would be uh, very useful for me. This would make my journey more comfortable, more accessible. I, I would. I would like to have it, you know, and then when you're involved from the very beginning, you know, it's it's really like encouraging you to make sure that, okay, my voice actually matters, you know, I can really find the dialogue with the transport providers. I can, you know, I can make my voice heard to the city authorities and so on. But, it's, you know, the co-design is like, it's very nice, but in practice, it's sometimes very hard to to implement. And, and we, we noticed that in the cities that, for example, it, it, it was a bit challenging in, in, in some of the seven cities I mentioned uh, because it's very non-hierarchical way and uh, many, you know, um, transport providers or city authorities, they, they want to do it, but they're not used to do it. And, and for them, it was like very new approach. But what can, can we say that um, when you give time and you give effort and if there's willingness from both sides, and that's very important that the willingness would be from both sides and from the users as well. Uh, there's a possibility to do great things, you know, because it's actually beneficial to everyone who's in. In, in terms of your research findings to date, um, the foundation of the project is based on the Mobility Divide Index and also on methodologies of co-design, which you developed with the sample seven cities and which you hope to apply to other cities. But Tally... Uh, before we get on to that, do you want to talk about your own background with uh, trilateral research and how you came into the TRIPS project? Okay, so uh, trilateral is a, is, an, is a UK SME. Our, uh, we specialize in, socio, socio, we call it socio-technical research because we are looking at the social aspects and the social impacts and the social considerations of the introduction of technologies in, in society. And of course, the ethical implications. So to make sure that uh, uh, the process of developing is ethical, but also the introduction of innovation in society is ethical, and it leaves no nobody behind. Uh, and this is where kind of uh, so if you like social innovation is at the core of of what we do, even though our projects are more or less commercial. So just. 
if we, we, if we talk a little bit about some of the, the research findings that have come back. So on the mobility divide index, do you want to maybe talk about the six dimensions of public transport experience and, and what that means? Okay, so the MPI was, you know, if you want to change something, you need to measure it. Yeah. Um, and uh, we we looked at that, what was out there in terms of measuring accessibility and a lot of the a lot of the metrics that come from the industry, uh, we were not sure whether it reflects the user's perspective, how the users see accessibility. So, for example, to measure distance between somebody's house and the and the bus stop, <laughs> it's not necessarily the same for somebody who has disabilities and somebody who doesn't have disability. Mm. Uh, so, this we wanted to find out. What is it about accessibility? How how people think about accessibility from their own perspective? So literally, we gathered uh, our groups around the cities and our working teams around the cities and said, "Okay, guys, if we want to measure accessibility from your point of view, what is it that matters to you? What is it that matters to you when you plan your journey, when you go to?" Can't stop uh, when you board, when you wait, like you get information, all the stages of the journey from leaving, from before leaving your house, planning your journey to arriving to your destination. So we took all of these stages and we literally brainstormed all the factors that stop you or, or, uh, it's difficult for you or deter you from, from, um, you know, from deciding to, to embark on a journey. And literally went step by step methodologically and brainstormed factors of importance. And once we did that, uh, we kind of clustered things together. What is it that is common in terms of the two? Yeah. So I, so the dimensions were comfort, like everybody needs to be comfortable, like when they're traveling, because if you reach a board a threshold of inconvenience, it's just not gonna go. Right. Yeah. And so it was convenient. You know how convenient something. Safety, very important. And and of course, time. Time was really important. Like we, on average, uh, an hour's journey takes about twenty minutes more for a person with disabilities because they cannot board on uh, on a particular train. Transport. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. Uh, that's unacceptable. Uh, and of course, affordability, which we didn't test because affordability was affordability. So it's a common thing. The whole idea of the MDI is that uh, persons with disability should be able to travel on their own, whether they are blind, on wheelchairs, uh, have a hearing impairment. Like they need to be traveling on their own, preferably without stopping a bus driver to stop the, tra- the, the transit and come and help you, what would be? So we wanted to measure that. Can you embark on it on your journey on your own to a known and unknown destination? Uh, and this is what we tried to measure. And what stood out, you've mentioned some of them there just even in your description, but what stood out f- for you from that comparative analysis? Um, a lot of the the biggest, because we did also a survey, and this kind of coincides with the findings of our survey 
on both of our surveys. The first and last mild issues of a journey are really uh, important, are really, are really difficult for people. And not so much the first mile, because often journey starts from somebody's house. Mm-hmm. So you kind of choose where you live and you know your area and where you need to go. But the last mile is particular because, especially when you veer off to a new destination, let's say you, some friends invite you to go to this coffee place and you're meeting and you've never been before. So for Lara, who is uh, on a waitress, you might be thinking, okay, I'm coming down from the station. Can I really get on to that cafe from my bus stop? Yeah. And especially with new destinations, you're ne- you never have the certainty that this is, will be feasible. Also, a gap in issue from the survey more than the uh, the solutions was the public attitudes and the driver attitude mm-hmm. towards persons with disabilities. And this is not just the practical, right? We like I cannot be fighting with a mother about with a tram for yeah. a space on the bus. It's just like it's, we need to develop some sort of transport etiquette uh, with how we how we coordinate with uh, with other passengers with disabilities. And some disabilities, for example, if you are deaf, nobody knows you are deaf really, so they don't they don't look after you. Yeah, if that makes any sense. So that's the interesting subject we don't really think. I was, yeah, I was really interested in reading your, uh, through your research to hear about the idea of a transport etiquette. Um, and of course, there are infrastructural barriers and digital barriers and all kinds of barriers. But there are also social barriers, which can't necessarily maybe be solved through rules or regulations. And it's maybe more through people becoming more aware and then behaviour and etiquette developing out of that. So, Laura, in terms of the co-creation side of things, you developed a methodology of co-creation which included people with disabilities and included researchers and municipalities, transport providers and so on. And that methodology was applied to all aspects of the project. So it applied to setting up the project, to carrying out the research and to developing solutions um, do you want to talk about that side of it? So, so yes, yeah, you're very right, Sarah. It's, uh, it was what we uh, imagined to happen in trips. And as I mentioned, we had these uh, local teams and they were supposed, well, um, we, we had two different uh, uh, groups of cities. So four cities, which was Bologna, Cagliari, Zagreb and Lisbon. Uh, they had like uh, full partners on board on trips. So they were expected actually to develop a solution. And for uh, the remaining three cities, which is Brussels, Sofia, and Stockholm, they were not expected to actually develop it. But the idea was like to to design the concept and maybe prepare some mock-ups. So, so what what we aimed, you know, that it was with a co-design matter from the very beginning. So, from the you know generating the idea and the, during the workshops, and then you know developing it, and then even testing it. So we just finished that part, you know. So most cities are actually doing the already did their um, first testing and uh, some cities already finished. So we created a lot of, um, a lot of uh, interesting, interesting uh, solutions. So each city had a set of deliverables and objectives. Um, do you want to maybe give some examples of what came out of the city studies? 
I think it's fair to say that a lot of them develop different aspects of travel planets because I said, yeah. as I said before, this was something that was feasible to actually deliver on in the in the you know in the time frame of the project. But more importantly, it's because irrespective of what type of disability you have, it's important for you to know that the end-to-end journey is accessible. And that, and there is no real time information about uh, that be, can give, be given to Laura to know that this is true. Uh, and so we try to, yeah, to make sure that, yeah, different solutions that can safeguard, mm. you know, and give this confidence to people that can reach their destination. Yes. And the journey planner seems to be so high up in terms of its importance to users. So are you looking to develop a prototype planner um, or is it is that a recommendation that will be picked up by others? And if so, how might it look and how can transport providers and municipalities work together to develop a really good quality journey planner? From a technical point of view, we didn't want to create a standalone journey planner because we know that different operators in different cities have their own journey planners, right? So there is no point developing a, a standalone other journey planner for you know disabled users. Yeah. We wanted to create, if you like, a technological layer, you know, something that can be superimposed, that be a functionality of existing journey planners. So if there's a journey planner in Brussels, you take our layer, you superimpose it, you integrate it in that existing journey planner that everybody uses and provide provide users with with, uh, accessibility information in an accessible manner. And what I mean is, you know, Laura is on wheelchair, but she can see and she can hear and she can use that. But maybe a, a blind person needs to have an accessible journey planner with a wayfaring, like with the ability to be directed step yeah. by step. That may not be useful for, for Laura, but it would be absolutely necessary for the blind person. So you need to be specialized, personalized, uh, depending on the type of disability you have as well. Yeah. And Laura, just in terms of other aspects and issues that came out of the city studies, what, what's, what's coming to the fore besides the, uh, the journey planner? Brussels, which is one of the most inaccessible cities, unfortunately, in Europe, they were like very much focusing on uh, having the accessible vehicles and real-time information that you, know, you actually can get on an accessible tram or an accessible bus. Stockholm, which is a bit more advanced when it comes to accessibility, uh, they raise the issue that it's very annoying every time to enter the details you need. Uh, for example, like the um, what is the measurements of your wheelchair if you're traveling with a wheelchair, or uh, what, what the assistance you, you might need at the station. So they wanted like to have this improvement that you, you provide some personal information and it's stored and it's passed on and the information you're receiving back as the user is related with what you actually need. So, for example, okay, if you're traveling with electric wheelchair, to make sure that you have enough space on the, on the vehicle uh, to, to embark yourself. Uh, so, to be focusing also on that. And uh, Sofia, 
besides, you know, having the working on the Accessible Journey Planner app, they also made a mock-up of the accessible bus stop. And it was a very nice concept, and, and we have very nice mock-ups, uh, how it should look like, but it's also you know, how to make this uh, stop more user-friendly and to making sure that uh, everyone, despite their, their impairments, they can check, you know, the information which is relevant uh, to traveling by bus. So, so, you know, when you see it, like, it seems very similar solution, like focusing on a, a digital journey planner, but then you, if you go more into depth, People are raising different aspects, uh, just as Kali said. So, so it was very interesting uh, to see, you know, how how it's actually developing throughout all the months. The mock-up of the accessible bus stop sounds so great. And I was also very interested to read about the so-called intelligent bus stop, which was developed as part of the accessible bus stop mock-up in Sofia. Um, but in terms of assistive technology generally, and maybe tell me more about the intelligent bus stop and about the viability of some of the other more futuristic technologies. Okay, so for the for Sophia, I find this is your question. Yes, it, the intelligent, accessible bus stops basically are intelligent. Like you need to use smart technologies to make a bus stop intelligent. It's not only about a ramp, it's about how the especially if you have sensory disabilities, how you relate to finding information, identifying if you're blind that the bus stop, the bus in front of you is the bus you want to embark on without the need, for example, to ask uh, somebody next to yeah. you or to ask the, the driver. So, it's, so intelligence is part of the requirement for an accessible journey, uh, for an accessible bus stop. And in terms of other future technologies, I mean, you know, I, I suppose maybe you'd agree that sometimes they can be a mask for other failings, maybe, or, you know, that the probably the primary um, goal is to have a universally designed, intuitive and accessible public transport system, you know, with really good infrastructure that everybody can access. But there is a role, I suppose, for smart technologies and for future technologies, um, you know, so... You know, in some of the literature that I was reading, there's uh, discussions on the sonar gla glasses, the smart bracelets that have a navigational element, um, you know, even uh, uh, smart mobility canes and all of that. I mean, in, in your opinion, Tally and Laura, what, you know, what role does that kind of future technology play in finding solutions? Yeah, yeah. I was looking at Tally because that's, uh, I think that's a big part of your survey. Uh, which we did uh, as one of the activities of the project, but just I can I can say shortly that uh, actually users do want uh, they're very keen to use the assistive technologies if they're really reflecting their uh, needs and if they're making uh, the person more independent. Actually, they uh, like what, if I remember well, and Tali, please uh, feel to step in and. And remember that users were very favorable towards, for example, wearables. So, for example, if you have like bracelets, which helps you to open doors or, uh, you know, to move the ramp. Like we, we have these kind of questions like, would you use something like this, you know, in, in, in your daily life? And then uh, shortly describing the, um, the assistive technology, the users were very fond on, on, on these, you know, which is not making a big deal out of it, but also 
you know, making your life easier. So I think that another favorable uh, thing was um, for, for visually impaired people who are like saying that virtual reality glasses with something that they would like to have, mm-hmm. provide the real-time information uh, about the environment. Uh, Robot. Robots, yeah, they were also very favorable to help you like to do the housework or, for example, if you go shopping, they can carry your um, your stuff, you know, or mm-hmm. the, the things you have bought. So, so I think it's I think users are very up to use this. If they're it's innovative, it's easy to use, it's and it's reflecting their needs. You know, yeah. it's not something. Like I was not very surprised <laughs> because I represent the disability angels, but I know that some of our partners were that exoskeletons were not a very common, you know, choice among the persons with disabilities because they say like, you know, and and, and then I I, I stepped in like as, as a representative of disability NGO that it's very important to make sure that the dignity of disabled person is you know represented, and yeah. when it comes to assistive solution, you need to be sure that. You're, uh, when you're creating it, is that the purpose is to make a person more independent, not that make disability more like visible or making, you know, something like innovative about it. Yeah. Because many people, they feel very good with their disabilities. And the only barriers they're facing is not, you know, with self-acceptance, because that's totally fine for many people. But, but the real issue for, for them is that, there are lots of barriers yeah. and uh, especially social barriers to them to have the fully, fully, how to say, fully independent life with the, with the equal opportunities. And then, you know, when you create something, you need to be sure that, okay, you're actually contributing to, to, to person to be more independent. As I said, not, you know, to making like, I don't know, bringing you to close to the norm, which is a medical model. And we're not very fond of that. And in, in, in annual, if it arises from the need, and it tackles the barriers, then it would be something probably that people will use. And if it comes, you know, like without doing the proper research, without having uh, those people, the users involved in the from the very beginning, then you, it might be risk, you know. It might be that people will not accept that. Yeah. And I think it comes to any other product, right? It's not only about the persons with disabilities. It's like, why would you need use something if that's not needed, you yeah, know? So, absolutely. So it's also very important to have that in mind. Sometimes we have, we experts, have this idea that the users won't act and and we don't ask them if this is something that they would actually want. So mm-hmm. I remember I was talking with Frank, Laura's uh, colleague, and we were writing, writing the proposal. He's also on a wheelchair and we were talking about exoskeletons, right? This is an up-and-coming emerging technology and stuff like that. that and sorry, Tali, you walk. For people who don't know, what is the exoskeleton? How does it work? Briefly. Oh, sorry. So it's almost like a, it's, a, it's a mechanical, um, if you like, a body structure yeah. that you can, you're a little bit like Robocop. Like yeah. you wear this on top of you and it, uh, it uses technology and smart technology to help you lift yourself, to help you walk. Sure. And, and also to sometimes to help you even lift stuff. So you look a little bit like a transformer when you're wearing it. So, and so I was talking to to Frank, who was uh, on the wheelchair, and said, "Like, would you wear like as a as a wheelchair user? Would you wear this? You know, would you would you like to have something that I 
teach you to actually walk? And the, and the answer was no. I, I am comfortable with my wheelchair. This is part of, you know, my identity and what I'm used to, how I'm used to uh, kind of go around. Yeah. And that will be completely foreign. So there's no point investing in this technology unless we have the market for it. And we should be asking the the people, people. whether this is something, a solution for, for them, not assume that it will be assumed that they will want it. So, I mean, I just uh, was interested on uh, in terms of uh, infrastructure and the role, like cycling infrastructure has been rolled out all over Europe and in Dublin, and Ireland, we're a little bit late to the, the party on it, but uh, there's a lot of investment in cycling. And you got some interesting feedback in terms of um, the role that, um, you know, the, 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 both the role that, that the kind of cycle infrastructure and the e-mobility and all of that can play, but also the kind of conflicts that can arise. Uh, there's a, an actually UK um, NGO that is called um, wheels for Wellbeing, mm-hmm. and it's a disability NGO in London that is all about kind of a providing alternatives, cycling alternatives for people with disabilities, as well as riding training so people get their confidence and riding in groups and stuff like that. So there is the, the schemes side of, of cycling. Any scooters as well, right? So it's it's the same, uh, but it's all, but, and there's all, and, but on the other side, the, the flip side is the cycling infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with the cycling infrastructure, we know from our study that uh, those people in wheelchairs piggyback on this infrastructure because it's hurdle free, yeah. right? But also it's very scary for them because it's the same lane, as the short lane for very uh, fast-moving cyclists and also people on wheelchair and also people on mobility scooters. So there's a mixed bag of uh, of uh, users in very short space. Yeah. So we need to rethink that. Also, for example, uh, some very easy solutions, but also like we need to think about, there are no ramps into <laughs> the cycle lanes and not the cycle lanes. So how do you do that? Yeah. There are also no kind of parking layoffs that people can safely embark and disembark. So these are kind of infrastructure or solutions that can complement the existing design of cycling. Yeah. It would just think a little bit different. And it would be useful for mothers with kids that want to ride a tandem bike with their kids, right? Yeah. In safety. So it's not just for disabled, it's just for, for other categories of users. Too. Absolutely, yeah. I know that uh, with the introduction of e-mobility, faster uh, bikes, faster electric bikes, faster electric scooters, you know, there's a whole new conflict between maybe vulnerable walkers, elderly people, all of that. Uh, and yet there are, there's a whole kind of world of possibility as well. So I guess it's back to that kind of empathetic co-creation and understanding all of the users, you know. Sarah, on that point, what I have to say, and I have been saying that in CVCAS, is like, what is, who is this infrastructure for? Because I'm sorry, but Europe is growing older mm-hmm. by the minute, right? So if you exclude the elderly, people with disabilities, which are not a mixed group, we are 100, according to who, we are 135 million registered disabled users 
in Europe. Yeah. So it's not like a small niche number. So you exclude the elderly, the disabled, the mothers with kids. Me, because I'm not going to get on with a fast, you know, like I'm not considered elderly, but I wouldn't really want to ride a really fast lane yeah. uh, on the cycling. No, I don't want to endanger myself. Mm. So who is this infrastructure for at the end of the day? And in terms of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, would you say that it's been a game changer in terms of how people are talking about disabilities and in terms of how people think about disability? Uh, For example, like you say, you know, things have generally moved more towards the user and towards people's own experience and towards people's rights. So, Laura, how has how has it made a difference or has that difference yet to be felt? CRPD, we call it CRPD, with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It's one of the core uh, core documents uh, to have it. And uh, we are a very big fan of it and, and we're really promoting it hard. Because, yes, truth is that many European countries have signed it, and not only European countries. And uh, they made some promises for persons with disabilities that you will have access, equal access to all the human rights you should be having. But uh, I must say that, you know, on paper, it sounds way better than um, than it is in reality. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, changes are not coming very fast. But at least when you have, you know, the legal paper and the uh, country's uh, legal responsibility uh, to, to do something, I think it also can help to move the change a little bit faster. And it's really aligned, I would say, with what we're trying to do the, in, in TRIPS project and with all the co-design methodology, because... When uh, the countries ratified the convention, uh, they they have committed to respect the rights of persons with disabilities and also, as I said, to provide equal opportunities to enjoy accessible and independent traveling as well. And it's stated in, in the convention as well that you cannot create something without having persons with disabilities involved in the process, involved in the process of creating the future mobility solutions and improving accessibility because they're the ones who are experts and they're the ones who are, who know what exactly it's needed. And, and I think the message is carrying that over, you know, all our talk, but but that's very compliant with the with the convention itself mm. because they're also bringing it, okay, people with disabilities exist. That's a lot of them, the facing barriers. Here is the tool, you know, what you need to make sure that uh, that they, they, they can enjoy the rights as they should. Mm. So, so I think it's a very important document, and in trips, we also been bringing it to to to, to whatever where it's possible. And what I also really like it, like it's focusing on a social model of disability, and which is, you know, not stating or contrary to the medical model, which yeah. the medical model claiming that okay, the person with disability is not normal, like not normal, and we need to fix him or her or them to make sure that they fit in in the society. And the social model is all contrary. I'm telling this to, to the listeners who may be not familiar with the models, that shortly uh, saying, they're saying that, okay, everyone is unique. Everyone has different abilities, different strengths, and, and maybe something that, you know, some issues you are facing. But the, we as a society, we should be open-minded and to make sure that we reduce the barriers as much as we can, you know, to allow everyone mm-hmm. to, to have equal opportunities. I think also it 
if you don't mind me saying, I, th- I think the inclusion of, of, of users in the, in the conversation, something else for, for me uh, that I have observed, I think transport operators think that they need to spend a lot of money to make accessibility happen because they just cannot think, with, they cannot empathize with, with the users. Like the, you don't, if you don't have, if you're not faced with a condition, you are not. You can't mm. like physically you can't. So, we, but I found like the the users are so reasonable about what they're asking, and some of the solutions is not about spending a lot of money. Mm. It's about ma- maybe even spend like very little money that will make such a big difference Absolutely. from their point of view. So these conversations can actually help us save money from the things that they don't want and put money into the things that they, it would actually make a big, big difference. Mm-hmm. I, I strongly support what Tali said. And if I might add, there was also, you know, because in, in Trips World, we did the research, and we did many things we haven't time to talk about. But one of the research was to identify the barriers. And even myself, I was very surprised when I found out that people, you know, came up to us and said that the government is spending lots of money to have this accessible taxi or special, specialized service for persons with disabilities, when people say that if I had choice, I would never use it because I want to go with my friends. I want to go with my family. I want to go, you know, use the uh, public transport is fine. Just make it accessible. Don't invest millions in creating something that, you know, is segregating and not needed. Just talk to us and we will say what's needed. And as Sally said, it's super reasonable. You can even, you know, sometimes name it point by point, you know, what what can make it, you know, instantly, you know, uh, more accessible. So, mm. so just talk to the users. That yeah. would be my yeah. main takeaway, you know, and, and they will, and, and I think that would be very beneficial <laughs> to find out, you know, what actually, what actually is it. Before we just get on to where people can find out more information on, on both this re- research, on possible solutions, on how to get involved, to follow progress and all of that, we, we maybe let people know about that in a minute. But before we do, do you want to uh, maybe just sum up, um, um, like obviously the co-creation, the listening, the role of assistive technology, the feedback from cities is all very important. But is there anything else that you think it's important to say based on the research and findings that you've you've carried out to date? So I would like to just mention some of the systemic changes that we feel that uh, are required to change the mindset and uh, and set up the, 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 the structures that will facilitate the adoption of accessible innovation in society, in the transport sector, but maybe in society more generally. So... We are going to change the, the buses of the, the bus fleets across Europe to make them green. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's a reality. Let's make sure that all the buses, all the new buses in the green fleet are accessible. They are designed to be accessible, period. And no bus that is inaccessible will be procured in any city. In order to do that, we need to change the standards of procurement sure. of uh, vehicles in cities. So we change the standards. We make uh, we make part of the procurement standard a bullet point yeah. needs to be accessible in that 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 respect. And therefore, a municipality is allowed then to 
to buy or or license the the best value for market um, <laughs> value for money service, assuming that it is accessible. So non no non accessible vehicles are in the market at all. Yeah, forbidden. Forbidden. Yeah. That's it. Baseline you know? requirements. from the yeah. <laughs> the place of yes. We realize that. Uh, a lot of transport operators shy shy away from engaging the users in co-creation because they don't know how to do co-creation. Usually, big infrastructure pro- projects are top-down project management, so we need to change the you know, like they need to be trained in a different way of doing project management, mm-hmm. which is why we developed the MOOC. Uh, but also, we realize that the accessibility research, or even, you know, like there are not enough disabled people who are well-versed in co-creation because nobody has actually engaged them in co-creation. So we need to develop persons with disabilities that, to be designers yeah. and then consult, train, become a resource for companies to do uh, accessibility initiatives. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to set, to establish a to establish a, a center for access like a center of excellence for uh, accessibility uh, design. Yeah. So we gather the academics, we gather the experts. Like it becomes a hub, like a network of hubs that become a consultancy, a trainer, a mentor to support organizations who want to do accessibility initiatives practically. Yeah. And the other thing that we try to do with the MDI, like we have developed, um, you know, because what gets measured gets done. <laughs> so what we are trying to do is, is the MDI is not just a framework. We have created the app for it, like a, a mobile app for it. So people can go and audit yeah. the accessibility of their, of the transport or their, yeah. in their cities every day. They they will be also given the the capability the functionality to take a picture and upload it and create an incident a comment you know this is my this was my barrier this is what when it happened where it happened and and it's geolocated so then all this information is visualized per disability so transport operators can see what were the problems with the buses when was this happened which service. Was it a problem that the blind people face? Was it a problem people in wheelchair face? So they can actually have hands-on information and to do and prioritize mm. because that's the other thing with a with a quantitative. You can prioritize to see how many people are affected yeah. in their journey. So we want to establish this observatory huh, uh, based on the MDI. Uh, across Europe to understand how accessible our cities. We have livable cities, smart cities, let's have accessible cities. I was just going to add to what what you were saying, Tally, is is so interesting. You know, they just kind of... Uh, you know, these very strong, concrete recommendations that'll make such a difference um, and that, you know, you've got your smart cities, you've got your green cities, you've got... But ultimately, all of these will interconnect and overlap because they're all about people using cities. So, you know, your accessibility, your smart technology, your biodiversity, your usability of cities and the kind of quality of life um, for everybody. Um, and Laura, did you want to add anything to that? I mean, I think the, the, they're, what Tally went through there were incredibly 
kind of concrete um you know recommendations for 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 everybody when it comes to persons with disabilities i would also like to uh to promote the co-design and to say that okay if you want to create something bring the users bring the users from the very beginning and make them as equal uh equal partners in in, in co-designing and co-developing something but also i find it super important and, and there's a topic that it's often forgotten that okay if you want users or a person with disability to bring their expertise, it shouldn't be taken for granted. Because uh, it's what I really like about the trips, because yes, we had lots of users involved in all the seven cities. Uh, imagine that um, each of the core user team have up from five to eight persons with disabilities. They're actually compensated for for being there and yeah. providing expertise in uh, to the field and you know to, to arranging the meetings, to providing feedback, constant feedback. Yeah. To, being in the workshop, because I think that it's very often taken for granted that, okay, the persons with disabilities, they they just come and, you know, deliver something while, while you know, transport providers, they're actually getting paid Pay for this it. because yeah, that's yeah. their job. And I, and I really much like to advocate for that, that, okay, if you want something to be done on an equal basis, you need to, you know, to, con- like, n- not to pay, but to, to make sure that the person... Persons' efforts are well yeah, and 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 and, uh, and acknowledged, and uh, I find it super important because uh, you know at Anil and other local disability NGOs, we often hear, "Hey, but isn't it hard for you just to come, you know, and give the feedback? It's for greater good." Yes, it's for greater good, but can you imagine how many times I'm asked to do this in 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 the process, you know? And keeping in mind that we all, you know, have life actually. Yeah. We have work, we study, we have families, leisure time, anything. So I would, you know, to say that, you know, if and, and it's also like very, how to say, the equality comes here, you know, like, okay, if you consider everyone equal, that should be, you know, equal understanding that their work is also matters. Exactly. Much. And that that ex- expertise has value. I mean, I mean, of course, we're nice people. And if you ask me, like, uh, you know, coming like small, uh, you know, companies or something, I would never say no, but keeping in mind, you know, if you have opportunity, it would be nice, you know, to be, to make sure that you're giving something in return. And that shouldn't be cookies and coffee, you know. I will, I will not be very innovative here, but I would say, uh, when it comes to persons with disabilities and any changes either in public transport or whatever you, you're planning to do is nothing without us. Yeah. Nothing about us without us. So I think it's it's really the heart of the of the message that okay, if you want to do something and to make sure it works, get the users involved from the very beginning and and don't be scared, you know, if it's not going according to the plan because it's not so easy as it might seem as a paper, but I think it always pays off, you know, the the effort. If if there's commitment and, and effort and and time dedicated to to work in a co-design manner, I think it eventually it will work. <laughs> so just just do it. Just do it, yeah. And Tally. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I would uh, dilute uh, the message of Laura because that is the, that is the message. Don't shy away of interacting with users if you want to make accessibility happen. It will save money. It will save time. It will have maximum impact, so we can achieve more together. Um, and that's that. Uh, and this is at a practical level, at a 
sector level, at the political level, it just involves directly the users in all these processes to make things happen. Very well said. So to finish, you're both doing incredibly important work and incredibly interesting work. Um, so we'll post all of the information on our website so that people can learn more about TRIPS, about the Mobility Divide Index, about the research, about the possible solutions. And um, I'm really looking forward to keeping in touch and following progress and hearing more and learning more and hopefully applying all of your good work to our own work. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for the opportunity to, to speak to your audience. and. Uh, Yes, indeed, we we really, really appreciate your your time and your effort and uh, we look forward to future engagement. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and for the flexibility uh, for, for making the time. It was a pleasure, you know, to to speak about trips and to bring the messages from trips to, to you and, and to your listeners. So thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's incredible work. So, yeah, thank you. So that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Lyra and Tally and their great work on accessibility and mobility across Europe. For those curious to learn more, we highly recommend checking out the trips-project.eu website where you can participate in mobility surveys, learn about the co-design toolkit and read all about the Mobility Divide Index research. We will also link to it in our episode notes and on our website. Thank you to our host, Sarah O'Donnell, to Trevor Cudden on sound, to the production team, Kathleen Jacobi, Rachel Cahill and Claire Scott, to Sinead Foley from TU Dublin, who designed our fantastic graphics, and to everyone else who helped make this podcast. Please send us your comments and feedback to allaboard at tii.ie. And for more episodes from All Aboard, please go to Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.